0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Uh, last fall, towards the end of the fall, into the winter, we were looking at um, how God works in our lives to change us, I mean, to completely change us from the inside out. We looked at real life, real change. If you remember, it was called Real Life, Real Change, and what I thought we'd do now when we're looking into the book of Thessalonians, is, uh, because it's coming up in chapter two and chapter three, we look at how you and I, how we can actually help other people assist in their real-life real change. In other words, at grace here, we sincerely believe that every believer, every single believer, is a minister. And so what we're going to look at today in First Thessalonians is attributes of what it means to be a minister. If you look at those, you're going to look at that list, and I'll show you that list in just a second, but it's going to look like a list of leadership, but that's because leadership is ministry, and ministry is, in many ways, it, leadership. It's, it's um, imparting uh, enthusiasm towards people to become what God meant them to become. You can read a lot of books on leadership. You can go to seminars and conferences and go to websites. And at the end of the day, you're going to find yourself with a long list, and sometimes it could be quite frustrating, and you wonder how much of it would work anyway in real life circumstances. But when you look at 1 Thessalonians, when you look at what we're going to study this week and next week, what we'll learn next week, it's amazing that Paul, the apostle, rides into town, spends about two weeks there, and leaves them unified, enthusiastic, Committed to the cause of the gospel, even in the context of persecution. So I just I don't know where else you can find a place where a single person, or actually three guys, come in town and leave after six to eight weeks with all this sort of influence on people. Leadership, ministry is is that. It's in it's inspiring influence. And everybody is in the context of leadership. If, uh, if you're in the fifth grade apartment, you're coming to church, then you probably have a big sister or a, a little brother or little sister that you can influence. There's people in your school, right? Every, every one of us leads. We lead in the family in some context. If we're, even if we're a, a, a teenager, we can lead in the family spiritual development if you look at these principles at work, on the field, whatever, whatever the context might be, you have the possibility of leadership because you have the possibility, the potential of ministry. Every believer is a minister. And what we're going to look at is probably the most compressed and efficient and, and practiced uh, essence of, of ministry that you'll see in a, in a couple of paragraphs. Twelve sentences. Twelve sentences, and it's, Paul's going to give us about four things to avoid, and, and three things to do. He's going to give us a big picture of what the goal is. He's going to do this in a very short bit of time. And I, I think it's, it's, if nothing else, it's fascinating in its, in its efficiency. Now, to give you some context before we read it, and then I'll tell you what to listen for when we read, but the context is important because when you, when you read, especially from now to the end of the book, but in this one section that we'll look at this week and next week, uh, Paul seems a little defensive and he kind of is a little defensive. The reason is is because he's he's going from town to town um, with nothing more than the gospel, but that gospel is shaking up the towns. And everybody is either for him or against him, for the gospel or against the gospel when he leaves because the gospel um, is divisive. Uh, Culturally speaking, to the Jews, they hated it because uh, essentially, right, God becomes man to pay the price for our sins, raised again to prove that point. And you kind of lost them at God becoming man. And so they're resentful towards that message. The Greeks don't like it because God becomes man to pay the price for our sins, proves it by resurrecting, and he is the only way that you might have eternal life. The only way? He's the only God? So, the Jews hate him for becoming man. The Greeks hate him for becoming the only, by stating that he's the only God. But mostly the gospel is resentful to people because the gospel insists that you repent. It says you're absolutely wrong. It doesn't say that you've done wrong, it says that you are wrong. And you don't have a chance unless God decides to do something for you. And that just grinds right up the pride of the person's spine and uh, causes a person to pick up rocks. And that's what's happened in this uh, situation with Paul. Paul has left town. He had to leave in the middle of the night because they were going to kill him. And he tried to get back a couple times, but it was still too dangerous. And so, in this section here, Paul's defending himself, and he's going to say, here's what my motives were not, here's what my motives were, and this is what my goal is, okay? Here's what my motives were not, here's what my motives were, here's what my ultimate goal is. And and i want you to see that that those th- that that kind of ministry causes people to want to change it causes people to say god can you make me a different human being so listen i bet i'll bet somebody in your life really wants to change i i mean it could be right it could be a friend or a family member it could be a coworker but I'll bet there's something inside their soul that's calling out for it can't go on any longer. And they are so frustrated because they've tried all kinds of, you know, right, techniques from going on the internet or reading books or whatever it might be. And in the 12 verses here, if you could emulate some of the things in these 12 verses, you could be a person that influences a person for change. Now, here's what to listen for, okay? Here's what to listen for. Things to, I've kind of stated already, things to avoid, there'll be four of those. Things to pursue, attitudes, motives to pursue, and a, and a, and a big overarching purpose for everything that Paul does. That's going to be almost at the very end, so it's inductive in nature, okay? So let's read that together. I mean, this, uh, this is what it means to be a person of change. Um, okay, uh, Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, so you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure or in vain. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you of His gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure thoughts, okay, the appeal that we're making does not, there's our first not to do, does not spring from error or impure motives, nor trying to trick you, on the contrary right we speak as men approved by god to be entrusted with the gospel you're not trying we are we're not trying to please men but god who tests our hearts you know we never used flattery nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed god is our witness we were not looking for praise of men not from you or anyone else as an apostle of jesus christ right we could have burdened you but we were gentle among you as a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share our lives with you, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we were preaching the gospel of God to you. Here's verse 10 now you are the witnesses, and so is God, how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. You know that we uh, dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into the kingdom and his glory. Okay, do you see what a person of influence looks like? He avoids these four things, he pursues these three things, and he has this big goal at the end that everything is working towards, all the suffering and the pain and the hardship and the persecution is going towards this end in people. So if you can think of people, if you want to think of a person that you might have influence on, let's look at, let's look at four things to avoid first. I'm just going to go through this rather quickly. We'll look at four things to avoid, three things to uh, pursue, the big idea. And then what I'm going to do, we're going to step back and take a panoramic view and i want you to just see three principles, because you might get kind of um, weighted down on the, in, the, in, the, in the list. But there's three values, kind of overarching philosophies, I guess maybe you could call it that, that Paul has that are instructive and serve as a good um, connection to next week. Okay, so the first thing that we want to avoid is deception. That makes perfect sense, verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Paul is sincere. He is honest. He has a simple and pure heart. He's not trying to lie or connive or cheat. In a word, what we're talking about, what we're starting with, probably the most important thing, in a positive context, the word would be integrity. He's telling the truth. There's nothing else that's motivating him. He wants them to know what's real. If you don't have integrity, you have nothing as far as influence goes. If there's a contrast or a contradiction in what you say and what you do, you have no credibility. President and General Dwight Eisenhower says this about influence and leadership when it comes to integrity. In order to be a leader or a minister, we'll call it, in order to be a minister, one must have followers. And to have followers, one must have, co- have their, their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality for a leader, a minister, is unquestionable integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter what the, the, the place, a field or an army or in an office. If one's uh, associates find him or her guilty of phoniness, if they find that the individual lacks forthright integrity, then all will fail. His teachings and his actions must square with each other. The first great need, therefore, For ministry is integrity. So you can see Paul starts off right away by saying, We did this with sincere heart. And coming right on the heels of that is he said, We were not here for people pleasing or for flattery. That's the second thing you need to avoid. People pleasing and/slash flattery. If you look at the verses there, four and five, he says, Well, on the contrary, right? On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God. That, entr- with, that we're entrusted to the gospel, we are not trying to please men, but God, he says it twice, who tests our hearts, okay? You know we never used flattery. So, I mean, look, look what Paul's talking about there. We're talking about, first of all, it was sincere heart, what are you accusing me of? You're accusing me of being a people pleaser using flattery. Flattery is when you tell people what they want to hear so that you like them. And, you know, to be a person of influence in people's lives it's very easy to fall into wanting them to like you. <laughs> this is, you. know, It's hard to argue with this, right? I mean, you want to be liked. And, and what happens is you find yourself trying to please as many people as possible. And next thing you know, you're straddling a fence and, and you're just kind of trapped on this teeter-totter because there's conflicting values. And Paul's saying, look, you, gotta, you have to make a decision who you're going to please. And if you please people, you probably will not be pleasing God. And So Paul, how do you get around this it's this it's it's all but an addiction to being a people pleaser how do you how can you overcome that well the passage says you have to focus not on men but on God he says in verse 4 and 5 he says we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel okay we're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts so i i think when we when you and i find ourselves Compromising in, kind of, in some core values that the biblical, the Bible says, not opinions or even some beliefs, but real core values and convictions. And when we're laughing at jokes we shouldn't, right? It starts very subtly. You might want to stop and ask yourself, who who is my audience? And a great summation of the of the the Puritans about how to live for God was a simple sentence that they called, you know, they said, we we we. Um, we practice to an audience of one, and th- that was their way of kind of reminding themselves that there's, th- there's this one single entity that they are performing before, and that is God. So they would find themselves saying, to the audience of one, to the audience of one. And when we drift towards that, when we focus on pleasing God, then we're not in conflict with trying to pr- please various men, because you can't, you can't please everyone. That will ruin your life. Bill Cosby said it, I think, as well as anyone. He said, "I don't know the key to success, the secret to success, but I do need, I do know the secret to failure: try to make everyone happy." And and that is that is absolutely true. Paul's talking about something much deeper and much more influential here. But he's, but what he's appealing to is, I'm not, I was, I didn't come there to make you happy. I came to make God happy by te- teaching the truth. And, th- and you'll, I'll explain how all this is, is coming to a head in, in this next point here. The third thing we don't want to do is be uh, motivated by greed, wanting more. Look what he's being accused of. You know uh, that we never used flattery, this is verse 5, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. He's, he's appealing again to God being the person who judges him and then what's purifying his motives. He says, look, I didn't do this for greed. And if you can see... What they're alluding to here is back in those days, uh, it was not uncommon for uh, there to be traveling speakers or traveling entertainers, traveling teachers. They were called sophists, and they would do this for nothing other than money. If, if they were people of irrepute, they would find out whatever your town or village wanted to hear. They were ex- ex- extravagant and, and excellent public speakers, and so they would come in, and they would custom craft a message just for you so they would get paid. You can read all three of the, you know, the, the classics, Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle, all write against this type of sophistry. And Paul is being accused of this. He just came into town. He was here to make money. He was trying to please the people. He was trying to get famous and popular. He got, he got run out of town. I mean, I don't know if that's popular. But, uh, but that's what he's being accused of. And whenever we do things to want more, more of something for us, then it ruins the message, and it's not to God. And so, so Paul's saying, look, there was nothing in this for me. If there's something in it for you, even if you're a manager of a salesperson, right, and, and you're motivated by your, someone that's underneath you, and you just want them to make more money, so you make more money, it's pretty obvious. And everybody gets, what you, everybody gets the score. It's hard to change a life that way. You might make a better salesperson, but maybe not a better person. But when they see you just, just intrinsically caring about that person, it changes that dynamics of the relationship. Paul says, look, I wasn't in this for anything for me, financially or otherwise. I was in this for other things. And the last one is the last no to avoid is being authoritarian. Okay? And, th- and this is 6 and 7. And Paul says, I could have done this, but I did In verse 6 it says, as an apostle of Christ, we could have come and been a burden to you. I can do that but we were gentle among you. He could have written it down and said, apostles have entered the building. And so we're going to lay low, and you guys are going to feed us your best. And Paul ended up getting a job, a night job probably, uh, making tents, which is extremely laborious, and not being very well paid. And he did that not because he had a right to be an apostle and be paid for what he was doing, but he wasn't going to do that. He wanted to make sure that no one could read anything into what was motivating him. And, and so he used his power as an apostle. This is one of the earliest letters written, and he's already calling himself an apostle. He used his power to serve. The best leadership, the best ministry style is servant leadership, is servant style. And it's, and it's not like, you know, the person who puts his hands in his pockets and saying, oh, shucks, you know, I can't make a decision. Or, oh, I can't do that. You know, I, I shouldn't be doing those things. I'm no good at that. That's not what servant leadership is. That's really just pride. It's just masking itself. But servant leadership says, you know what? You know, how can I serve you? What can I do to get this done? And, and there's nothing that you won't do. <laughs> well, I was eavesdropping on my predecessor, Jim Rose. He was interviewing someone, and, and he said will you, to the person applying for the job, he said, will you, will you clean toilets? And the guy, you know, the person said, I don't know, I guess. And he goes, no, no, no. Will you clean a toilet? Like right now, will you clean a dirty, ugly, smelly toilet? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Jim said, you need to. It's just a matter of time. So you need to make up your mind now. Every, but I think every pastor on this staff has like literally cleaned a toilet here. It's just a matter of time. And there's, very, there's many uh, me- metaphors of cleaning toilets as well. Servant leadership means there's nothing you won't do if it needs to get done, and that makes a big in- impact. And that's what, that's what Paul was talking about. He, he, he didn't use authority. So he used the, he's saying, I didn't do these four things, and with each one, by the way, he said, I did this other thing instead. Now we're going to look at three things he did do that we need to pursue. We need to emulate, pursue, and try to acquire these motives. And the first thing is that he was extremely caring towards the people. He honestly cared for them. Look what it says in verse 7. As an apostle of Christ, right, we didn't burden you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for its little children. If you have a literal translation, it's a better way of looking at it. It says, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Isn't that more sentimental even? More gentle, more delicate. As a nursing mother cares for her own children. Paul appeals, and this is not something, if you kind of read the epistles or even the book of Acts, when you think about Paul, this is not the character that you would imagine. You know, Paul, a nursing mother. But he cares for them, and that's, what is, it, what is he trying to say? A nursing, a nursing mother is sacrificial. She is giving. She's, she's not in it for something else, right? A selfless concern towards another person. And usually, again, this nursing mother, the idea is that they know what that child needs, often more than before anyone else does. So Paul says, what did we do? Here's what we did. We cared for you like a mother cares for her brand new baby. That's what we need to pursue. Selfless, caring, that's sacrificial. The next thing Paul says, he says, I was loving. It sounds like it's a, he's, he's repeating himself, but it's a, it's a nuanced difference. Look at verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. Because you've become so dear to us. The sentence is sandwiched in love, right? We loved you so much that we didn't just come in and present the facts of the gospel to you, right? We weren't, we weren't, we weren't you know, right, taking scalps. We, came, we didn't give you just the truth that transforms your life, that brings you salvation, that sets the Spirit of God living in your soul. We gave you our lives. We told, this is what it means. This is how you influence people. This is how you, you share into people's lives so that they want the, the Spirit of God to change them. You tell them, you, you drop your shields, and you tell them, about the things you're afraid of and the things that you care about and the, your fears and your dreams, you share your life with them. You know, so much of discipleship, this is called discipleship, discipleship is, is, is overlapping and intertwining your love and fears and cares and concerns and dreams with each other. You, you, you are so dear to us. We wanted to, we wanted to be you. We wanted to be with you. You know, sometimes in the context of mentoring, right, in the context of mentoring, we make a person that's a little bit younger than us in the faith or, or maybe in life skills, we, we make ourselves out to be so well together that it is daunting and hopeless for them. And that's probably true if you're not telling the truth, <laughs> you know, if you're not, if you're not loving them. If you're not caring for them, if you're not giving your lives to them, not just the gospel, not just the doctrines. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, that's what discipleship was. Let's give you information for the most part, right? And, and these passages started to haunt the evangelical community, right? That we were delighted to share not only the gospel, but our lives as well. The third thing that Paul does very effectively is he he's, gives enthusiastic affirmation. Watch Watch all the descriptive words on how he affirms them. Um, verse 11 and 12, it says, For you know that we uh, dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, there it is, conf- conf- uh, comforting, and urging them to live lives worthy of God. So what we've we already had one of the positive. The first positive thing was the nurturing aspects of a mother. And now he's talking about the encouraging uh, attributes of a father. Listen. Here's the theme of today, right? It's it's how to be a leader, how to be a minister, how to help someone else want to change. What is he? What has Paul done? He said, "Listen, I'm just honestly, I'm just trying to be a really great parent. I'm trying to do both sides of this, where you know I'm concerning and caring and nurturing, um, uh, like a young child, and then I've got this other part of, of fathering. If if mothering is nurturing, fathering is coaching." And, and the coach is out there kind of in pushing a person to the point where they can enjoy uh, past where they would have quit. Right? I mean, that's the father's job is to say, will you get out there and skin some knees? You can only learn certain things by getting bruised. You know, if you don't get knocked down, you'll never know how to get back up. Right? Mothers don't say that a lot, but fathers do. And so Paul is doing that. He says, look, I don't, I don't want you to stay as a baby to be coddled. I want you to grow up to be an adult and, you know, this need for encouragement. All of us need this encouragement. You know, we need to know that, you know, sinners are forgiven and failures can get back in the game. And, and so one of the job descriptions of a person that's making a difference in people's lives is to pick people up and then push them to get them started. I mean, the prodigal son's father was working the night shift, right, night after night. That's the kind of father that he's, he's picturing here. Now, all of this, these four things that Paul's avoiding and these three things that he's attaining, okay, all of these are for this ultimate purpose, right, this ultimate objective that's found in the last two verses of this section that we're studying. Look what it says, verse 12 encouraging and comforting and urging them to live lives live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So Paul is saying, look, I have a goal for every single person I'm meeting with. This is the reason I've given myself to you. This is the reason I've taken you into my heart, is so that you could enjoy, right, this, that you would live a life worthy of the calling of God and to his kingdom and to his glory, because that's, what, that's how God is glorified. Uh, what's the saying? The glory of God is man fully alive. That's kind of the concept of, of, of becoming Christ-like. It's, uh, you know, philosophically, it's the expression of existentialism. It's like becoming fully human, becoming fully human like Jesus was fully human. And here's the thing. Here's what's interesting. Now, I mean, this, is, this is kind of free over here on the side, okay? So let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave church for just a second. You can influence people that don't even know Christ or want to know Christ and have this as an ambition. Because when, when you are a teammate or a coach or, uh, or a sales manager or whatever, and you are trying to get a person to live the fullness of the calling of Christ for his kingdom and his glory, okay, they start seeing that. They, when you ask people to buy your lifestyle… By your lifestyle, they start seeing you avoid these four things and pursue these three things with a goal in life. They start changing too, and they want more. And they'll hit a wall, and they can't get any more without the Spirit of God working in them. I mean, how many coaches have you heard? I mean, going all the way back to Tom Landry, Dallas Cowboys, some of you old guys know, right? His job description he said was, right? I made men do what they didn't want to do to become men they wanted to become. There's no football in there. There's no, there's no pigskin in the story. I made them do what they didn't want to do to become who they wanted to become. That's what Paul's doing. And then there's a point where they kind of say, well, Tom, what do you have that I don't have? I'm glad you asked. The gospel of God. The ultimate objective is, 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 is longing in the heart of every human soul to become like Christ. And, and whether we try it by the law or whatever method, we find ourselves needing a savior and that's where the gospel comes in so the point is the point is these things that paul did everything that he suffered for everything that he was called to was for the betterment was to make other human beings better to be children of god and called to his purpose and to his kingdom so let me, So those, are the, those were the seven things, the four things to avoid, the three things to pursue, and the ultimate goal that we should always be considering when we're, like, working in our student ministry. If you're a high school student and you're working in RISE, this is, what, this is how to do it. But if the seven things are a little bit daunting, let's just step back, okay? Those, that's a good list, and you need to pursue those things. But sometimes I do better with, okay, principally speaking... What's kind of philosophically happening here? Let's look at that. There's three things. One, Paul cared more about God and his gospel than anything else. Okay? First and foremost, if you look at Paul's hierarchy of life, first and foremost is his commitment to, the, to God and his gospel. And the reason I say that is because three times he says, I don't care about pleasing people. Another three times he says, I'm just trying to please God. So that's six times in some respects. Then another three times it says the gospel of God. You will never find in the Bible a more condensed expression of that figure of speech anywhere. The gospel of God. In other words, this is what's rattling around in this man's cage. Paul is not even thinking about Paul. If you look carefully at this passage... Paul isn't thinking about, well, what about Paul time? When does Paul get his? That's not in there. Because what does he think about? He's thinking about God and his gospel. He's, he's, he, he keeps saying, you know, I'll answer to God for this. God is my witness, he says two times. That's the first place to start. You rearrange your life so that God is first. The second thing that he does, principally speaking, the seven things kind of are working towards that. Actually, the eight when you consider the ultimate purpose is he, he obviously, he obviously loved people. Let me just take it one step at a time. Obviously. He kept telling them, remember? He, he didn't have to say, I wrote a paper on this. I taught a sermon, remember? He said this. I'm going to go through this six times, I think, six times. Verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers, verse 2, you had already, that we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know. You never, we never came to you with flattering words, as you know. For you remember, brothers, our toil and labor, verse 9, verse 10. You are our witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was, verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we ex- exhorted you and encouraged you. Six times he says, look, just look over your shoulder. Remember when we went through this together? So he was obvious in his love for them. Look, the, the affectionate words that he's using, like a, like a mother nurturing a nursing child, right? Like, like a father encouraging, we loved you. We became part of you. What was he, We love you. you. You became dear to us. They, when he left town after six, eight weeks, they heard with their ears the words, I love you. Not love ya," I love you. You can't influence people without love. You can manage them, okay? You can manipulate them. You can beat them into submission. But you can't change. You can't be part of the change without love. Uh, the the, the kingmaker of preachers is a gentleman named Dr. Haddon Robinson, and I was sitting in a class one time early in the lectures, and he, he's going through about what makes good preaching and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of stops and then just kind of yells. He yells this in class. But if you don't love people, get out of the ministry. <laughs> well, okay. That's what Paul's saying. He obviously loved people. Okay. Everything was about, was about God to him and his gospel. He obviously loved the people. And the third thing was he, he had a goal for everyone. It, it wasn't obscure. It wasn't abstract. It was that verse 12, right? That everyone would enjoy the calling, encouraging, comforting, urging them, all these things to be worthy of the calling that God gave them to his kingdom and to his glory. He was, he's, try, he's trying to bring everyone into becoming a saint. Listen, if you're, if you're a parent here and your kids are coming to our student ministry, I want you to know that we're not trying to make them good citizens. We're trying to make them holy citizens of God's kingdom. And if that's threatening to you, there's other churches you can go. Every ministry we have here is pointing towards this goal. And, and if you want to call that a fanatic, you can, because that's what they called Paul. Because he obviously loved them for a purpose. And the purpose was greater than than anything. It was God and his gospel. So, look, we only have a few minutes. I'm going to just, we've laid out a lot of material here. I told you, this is one of the most dense and consolidated and efficient list of leadership skills and ministry skills I think you'll find. Okay, this is a seminar right there. It's a very short one. It's 31 minutes and counting. But here's the thing, I want you to, before we move on, and then kind of, let me just, as an introduction to next week. If you have baggage and injury and, and uh, kind of stories to tell, it's easy to look at Paul's life and say, and, and some of these, this list, and to say, and I was nervous all week about giving you guys a list, because lists just kind of say, well, not that, not that, not that. But here's the thing, you know, disabilities, I think Chuck Swindoll says this, he's a pastor up in Dallas, Disabilities do not disqualify. And, and if you've been in, in ministering to other people for very long, you realize that God uses the greatest messes to do the, the, sometimes the greatest goods. So if, if you're a victim of certain things in your background, your parents were alcoholics or victims of abuse and all that sort of thing, and they have all that crazy stuff rattling around in your head, I'm telling you, that makes you a perfect minister to other people with the same voices. If you've made a wreck of your life mostly through choices of your own, self-inflicted wounds, you can still be a minister. If you consider God and His gospel first, if you learn how to love people, and you have a goal in mind that they'd be made, called to be, you know, living a life worthy of their calling. It doesn't matter where you've been. We were saying about that, right? It doesn't matter. It was Sarah's prayer. It's where. You, it's. It's what you're desiring. Not to please people, not to gain assets, not, to, not, not something for you. There's no Paul in this story. It's all about God and his gospel and loving other people for a purpose. You can make a tremendous impact on people's lives around you. God has given us those skills. Next week we'll look at more details, actually more kind of bigger, broader strokes so that we can see how to be a person of impact. How do we do real lives, real change? That was last semester. How do we, a pers- how do we become a person that influences for real lives, real change? That's 1 Thessalonians. Why don't you join the rest of us in that journey together? Okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, with, um, with this life of Paul, I mean, it, it, is, it is tremendously pleasing to see how absolutely selfless he was. And because he lost himself in the gospel, in your forgiveness and you making him into the man he was meant to be, he was freed up to love other people for a purpose. So God, in those kind of the three big pictures, Lord, would you help us in those three, just pursue you and the beauty of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the majesty of that moment, that that might be the compelling focus of every thought so that we could be uh, dangerous in our love for other people for a purpose. Help us do that. Help us be great ministers that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.